0: The picture on screen is famous. It's a picture of the Napalm girl. It's iconic, actually. Uh, Pulitzer Prize winning for what it captures. Moving to the millions who have seen it, but hated by the girl in the picture. Uh, Hence the reason for the square. That is not a Pulitzer Prize winning square. Uh, But I've maintained her dignity. Her name's Kim Pook. She was running uh, from the aftermath of a friendly fire incident from her village in South Vietnam. And she recalls the camera. She recalls the man behind the camera and hating him for taking it. How could he be so cold when my skin felt so hot, she said. Well, in the years after this episode, her anger at that and other things grew. Of course, not just for the photographer and taking the photo, but for the pilot who dropped the bomb, for the commander who allowed it, and for all that they effectively made her go through, the 17 operations, the daily pain, the flashbacks, the night terrors, everything. She said, it filled me up with anger, bitterness, and hatred. I wanted revenge at first, but then I just wanted to die. But in 1982, 10 years later, those desires changed when she became a Christian. Recently, a video of her uh, went viral on YouTube, and in it, she explains the impact that the gospel had on her. She said, having read that, uh, the New Testament and becoming aware of the gospel, she said, I forgive everyone, even the pilot, the commander, since I have my faith my enemy list became my prayer list forgiveness set my heart free what incredible words and here she is pictured with the man who dropped uh, with the man who took the photograph along with others in the video walking arm in arm with the man who dropped the bomb forgiven and it's true If you're here tonight and you're new to Christianity, this is the way the gospel is worked out in people's lives who love Jesus Christ. We receive mercy, we pass on mercy. We receive forgiveness, we are keen to pass on forgiveness. And forgiveness, gospel forgiveness, can heal the deepest of wounds and reconciliation create the deepest of loves. That's what the family in our passage today needs, reconciliation and forgiveness. This is a story about Jacob and his 12 sons, but it's also a story about us. You see, God has promised to bless nations like ours through this family all those years ago And their unity is vital to that blessing. But there is a massive problem. In chapters 37 to 45, we see that they are miles apart geographically and especially relationally. And while the famine that we heard about last week is a very great threat to the existence of this people and the continuation of the promise, the bottom line is their sin is a greater problem even than the possibility of starvation. Their estrangement is a massive, massive problem. And while they're estranged, the promise is circling the drain. It's under threat. Which is why this story of how God reunites and reconciles them is as important as it is beautiful. So there are, there's a lot of text in this unit from 42 to 45, but it all boils down to two things that God did and indeed still does. Um, One, he awakens guilt, and two, enables people to assure forgiveness. So let's look at those in turn. Number one is uh, God has awakened guilt. Guilt awakened. God is at work to bring sorrow for sin. That's what we see in in chapters 42 to 44. Now, Chapters 42, 43, and 44 reintroduce Joseph's brothers to us after the episode of Joseph rising from prison to prime minister in a day. And what we are reminded of at this point is that Joseph's brothers are guilty sinners, right? They are guilty as a group. We looked at this in chapter 37 a while ago. They're guilty of hatred. They resented Joseph and the coat of his father's favoritism. They were guilty of actual crimes against Joseph himself when they beat him up and threw him into the pit and then trafficked him into slavery. I mean, if they did to Joseph what... um, If they did what they did to Joseph in this country today, each one would serve up to 40 years in prison. 15 to 25 years for GBH and intent to kill, 15 years for human trafficking and exploitation. It's a big deal. They're guilty. But they're also guilty of cold-hearted deceit because they went back after that episode and lied to their father's face. Joseph's dead. Oh, it's terrible, it's terrible, it's terrible. But they were lying. He wasn't dead at all. And it was a lie that they lovelessly drew out over a whole 22 years. They were guilty of hatred, crime, and cold-hearted deceit. They were sinners, just like us. But Judah, even at an individual level, who plays a very important part in this section, was a guilty sinner too. We saw that in our study in chapter 38. In the whole Tamar episodes, uh, he was guilty of turning his back on God and his people, going off to live with people who were not his people, involved then in idolatry, having sex outside of marriage with a prostitute, and then badly mistreating Tamar. What is Judah if he is not a guilty sinner? just like you and me. But then we come to chapter 42 through to 45, and something's different. It's like God has actually changed the brothers in some way. And that's exactly what Joseph is looking for when he's reintroduced to them, when they come to Egypt looking to buy grain. And remember from last week, there's only one place to buy grain, not even in Egypt, Joseph. That's who you go to if you want grain in the famine. So Joseph is really trying to interact with them on the basis of providing some kind of test for them. He wants to know, are they sorry and have they changed? Because let's face it, if you are Joseph in this instant, when they walk into the grain sales room and you say eyes on them for the first time, what are you going to do? What would you be tempted to do? Well, you'd be tempted to whip out the old swords and do some good old... 18-rated movie revenge. Or you might call on someone else to do that. But Joseph doesn't do that. He's not even revealing his identity straight away. He wants to know, are they sorry? Have they changed? Before he reveals his identity. So what's he looking for? Two things. One, remorse. That's what we see him looking for in chapter 42. Flick back with me to chapter 42... Verses 1 to 5 is a bit of introduction. Verse 6 then tells us that the brothers turn up with Joseph. They don't recognize him, of course, because he's Egyptianized. He would have had a hair and a beard (laughs) when he was back in the land of the Hebrews. But no, he's had a shaved head. He's looking clean shaven. He's been buying razors from Harry's, and he's, he's looking good and smelling nice, I'm sure. But they don't recognize him. Now, what would you... What we see here is that Joseph responds as he looks for remorse. He is looking uh, to accuse them of spying. He hears them talk, though, about their family. Verse 13, when he inquires about them, they reply, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives... Now, this is the first time he's heard that his dad's still alive. Lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest, that's Benjamin is now with our father, and one is no more. That's Joseph. Now, that must have tugged on his heartstrings. Maybe even stay any thoughts of the sword-like Batman revenge. Dad still alive. Benjamin with his dad. Joseph, interestingly, not left out of the story. So Joseph decides in the instant to give them a little bit of a taste of their own medicine. They had thrown, in him, thrown him in this kind of pit like prison for a short period of time. And indeed, he's been in prison for a couple of years as well. So he throws them in prison for three days. And on their release, decides that he wants to see his younger brother. I want to see your younger brother, he says. Then I'll believe you're not spies. And he keeps Simeon as collateral. Now that's important because that gives the brothers an absolute headache. The ruler wants proof of their integrity. What's that? Benjamin. Their dad refuses to let one son go down to Egypt. Who's that? Benjamin. Headache that no paracetamol will cure. They won't get food in famished times. If Jacob refuses this demand, they'll all die. Okay? It is as dramatic as it sounds. But they agree to try. Then something incredible happens. Joseph actually overhears them talking in Hebrew, which they don't realize he understands it, of course. They think he's Egyptian. But he overhears them talk about him, about Joseph, with tenderness and regret. And it's like they see God's hand in this trial. I mean, they once called Joseph, oh, here comes this dreamer, before they beat him up and threw him into a pit. And sold him, but now they call him our brother. Look with me at verse 21 of chapter 42. Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. Oh man, Joseph's like a dad watching Toy Story with his kids, trying hard to hide his tears. Like, he is moved with emotion at this whole scene. Could they really be sorry? Could they really have actually changed? I mean, verse 21 essentially contains an admission of guilt, a recognition of the fear of God that's come upon them, and sorrow. It's a remarkable thing. Surely Joseph wasn't even expecting that. But those are all the things that you would hope to see in someone who is full of remorse. And full of repentance. So Joseph, turmoiled by this emotion, sends them on their way with lots and lots of grain. And their money back. Which to them is weird. And maybe to us a little bit too, given what they've done to him. But we call that grace. Grace. When you give someone what they don't deserve, that's grace. Premium food handed out for free in famine, that's super grace, if you ask me. How wonderful to be so sinned against and yet so walking in step with the Lord that you feel inclined to bless even your enemies. Sounds just like Jesus, doesn't it? And what he calls his church to do. Well, Joseph had been looking for remorse, and he starts to see it. The next thing he's looking for is change. And I think he sees it in chapters 43 to 44. Two key things prove that the brothers have changed. And those are their treatment of Benjamin and Judah's speech as he offers to save Benjamin. Chapter 42, verse 27 through to 43.14 is a big chunk, but it basically tells us why Jacob, after refusing to let Benjamin go, eventually decides to let Benjamin go to Egypt with his brothers. For one, the grain Joseph gave them on their return had ran out, so they were starving. He was probably left with no choice. But secondly, he received a brother's pledge, a promise. Not Reuben's, Although Reuben stepped up first, we see. And Reuben offers this ridiculous pledge. Oh, I'll take Benjamin. And if we fail, you can kill two of my sons. Sit down, Reuben. Goodness me. What a terrible thing to offer. But then up steps Judah. Pagan worshipping. Prostitute sexing. I care about no one but Judah. Judah. And he says to Jacob, 43 verse 8. Look at it with me. Chapter 43 verse 8. Send the boy along with me, and we will go. See what he's just said there? Just the two of us. I'll take him down as proof. Just the two of us. No other brothers need be endangered. And then he says, I will guarantee his safety. Wow. Don't miss the impact of that. Here is a man who once left his family behind to go and live for himself, planning to leave his family behind to go and die to save them. He's offering himself in their place to save them. He pledges his own life, whatever the cost, in Benjamin's place. That's what makes Jacob reluctantly agree but he decides to send all of them anyway, including Benjamin. But most importantly, he sends them with the thing that sinners need the most. A prayer to Almighty God for mercy. May God not give you what you actually deserve. Is what he prays. Then in chapter 43, verse 15 and following through to 44:13, 13. It tells us what actually happened when he went to Egypt. Joseph's servants, amazingly, despite the fact that they have this fear of what's going to happen with the silver that they got back in their, their, their backpacks on the way home, they're greeted by Joseph's servant with peace and assurance. Don't worry, we got your silver. God's put your treasure in your backpacks. You can imagine them looking at each other and saying, did he just say Elohim? Did he just use the name God? Like Hebrew God. That must have been utterly baffling to them. And then Joseph himself comes in and greets everyone, but especially Benjamin, with a blessing. May God be gracious to you, my son. Elohim, again, the Hebrew word that sounds like the Aaronic blessing. May God be gracious to you and bless you. May the Lord make his face to He's using Hebrew terms concerning the Hebrew gods to offer gracious, comforting, welcoming words to sinners. It's absolutely mind-blowing. They must be like, huh? Utterly baffled by it. But then Joseph sets them all down for a meal, and this is, this is like the greatest test ever, right? Because in the past, Joseph's brothers could not stomach The favoritism that Jacob, the dad, showed Joseph. Here comes that dreamer. They said they detested his coat and all that it represented. They knew they were hated by their dad. So he sits them round. So that's why they got rid of Joseph. But he sits them all round the table to their astonishment, in order of their age. How does he know? (laughs) They must have been thinking. And then he shows favoritism to Benjamin to see how the brothers react in this instance. So they serve out dinner, and everybody in famine time gets a, a nice little meal set in front of them. I mean, this is the second most powerful man in the world, having them round for dinner. And they get a lovely meal placed in front of them. What does Benjamin get? Five times as much. Now, I don't know if you've grown up with siblings, but, I, you know, if so, how come they get two Yorkshire puddings? You know, is the kind of thing. that. We can fall out around our dinner table over things like that, but not here. Look with me at the end of chapter 43 and and verse 34. It just says, They feasted and drank freely with him. Him being Benjamin. They are perfectly content that he's getting five times as much that he's shown favouritism by their host. They're not jealous, they don't plot injury. Right, 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 let's get that little boy. Let's let's get rid of him on the way home, or something like that. They're content to eat with him, content with their host's favoritism. They've changed. Another thing that proves that to Joseph, though, is what Judah does later. You see, in chapter 44, verses 1 to 13, Joseph basically frames his brothers by placing the silver cup in Benjamin's sack. This is, you know, I said the last one was probably the greatest test, test ever, but no, I've changed my mind in the last 30 seconds. This is the greatest test ever. Because he places this cup in Benjamin's sack and then chases after them within an hour of them leaving and accuses them of this theft. And they're like, this, this is outrageous. Verses 7 to 8. Of chapter 44, they plead their integrity. In verse 9, they, so confident of their innocence, pledge death to the guilty one and servitude for the rest if there's proof. They're confident that no one's taken the silver cup. And then the drama unfolds with the stop and search of Reuben first and Simeon next, all in order of age again, finding nothing. And then Benjamin's sack is opened and they're like, aha, the cup. And then we read in verse 13, at this they're devastated. At this they all tore their clothes. Now this is important. When they presented Joseph's robe bloody and torn to Jacob and said he's dead, Jacob tore his robes. Their robes remained intact. Not even a tiny rip. But here at the prospect of Benjamin's Death, as they've just promised, they all indicate their mourning. Now look with me at verses 14 to 34. Where Verse 14, where Joseph was still in the house when Judah, Judah and his brothers, that tells you, the narrator is telling you that Judah is going to do something important. It's not just all the brothers here as it has been. It's now Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. His dream is unfolding before his very eyes. That the brothers would bow before him. And to their relief, no doubt, Joseph then offers in verse 17 not to kill Benjamin but to keep him and not to enslave the brothers but to free them. Go home in peace, he says. And again, it's a test because this is the ideal opportunity for these sinful brothers belonging to this dysfunctional family to do two things. One, to get rid of Jacob's other favorite son. And two, to get back at that old Torah for his terrible, terrible parenting, having favorites. What kind of father is he? Now, if they accept Joseph's terms, nothing has changed in Joseph's eyes. But then Judah steps up and offers what is effectively the longest speech in the storyline, which means readers... Get your ears ready. Listen up. The narrative, the whole story slowing down to point you to something that you're not allowed to miss. Judah intercedes on behalf of his family and graciously so for the life of his father and for the life of his brother Benjamin. That is so gracious of him. It's so wonderful. It's so moving, actually. I mean, here is Judah born to Jacob's unwanted wife, Leah, born to be an unwanted son, living under the sneer. Please don't do this to him. He's already lost one boy. And it absolutely devastated him that he refuses to be comforted in his mourning. What compassion! Who is this? Is this Judah? And then verse 30. Read it. If the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Wow. What compassion. What a surprise. But he's not even finished. Because Judah not only pleads for his father's life, he offers himself in place of Benjamin's. Verse 33, Now then, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return home with his brothers. Now there is the language of love. Substitution. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what we see Judah doing. His humble self-sacrifice was the outward expression of his heart's desire. A heart that refused to have even his unloving dad hurt anymore. And the boy who didn't deserve any mistreatment, freed. It's absolutely incredible. What was Joseph looking for in his brothers when they arrived? He was looking for remorse and he was looking for change. And there you have it. The realization that God has awakened guilt in sinners. And guess what? He does the same today. He does the same through our consciences. He does the same through our word, his word. He does the same in our conversations with one another as we speak the truth in love to one another. Pointing things out that we might not be able to see ourselves. We wonder, hey, I mean, do people actually change? Is there any hope for any change in any of us? Because we sin against each other at times. Why else do we read in the book of Romans that we are called in love to try and bear with one another in love? In Colossians 3, in exactly the same way. That's because we are trying to live like Christ, but at times we sin and get it wrong. Are we open and sensitive enough, soft-hearted and humble enough to have Guilt awakened in our hearts. It's a grace when God awakens guilt that points us to Christ and his cross. Now in the story, at the realization in Joseph that God has awakened guilt in these sinners, he absolutely loses it. And forgiveness is assured. And this is point two. Forgiveness is assured. Showing us that God has been at work in Joseph's life to enable him to extend mercy to these people. When you look at verses 1 to 3 of chapter 45, you can't believe the tension here. You know, Judah has just made this incredible speech about His dad, what compassion. And the boy, Benjamin, let him go. I'll take his place. And Joseph's like, too much. And then he's like, everybody out. And then he wails so loudly that all the neighbors hear him. Now, he's the second most powerful man in Egypt. Can you imagine what size his house was, right? Pretty big. He must have a few acreage around him, right? So for people to hear him in the next house, he must have been wailing pretty loudly, right? Well, what an expression of emotion before comes. Imagine the brothers stand there like, wow, should we, should we leave? Should we? This is a bit. Wow, what should we do? And he's like, I'm Joseph. He reveals his identity. Can you imagine, though, the panic of this Egyptian all of a sudden, speaking Hebrew, and to realize that the second most powerful man in the world is the brother you hated, beat up, and trafficked into slavery. If a hole could open up on the, bottom, on the ground. And, and Oh, man alive. It, I can't imagine it. Verse 3 actually says they were terrified. <laughs> and no wonder. But amazingly and amazingly, amazingly, they do not experience his wrath. They experience his his forgiveness. How do you know? Well, you look for two things. You look for reassurance. Joseph offers words of reconciliation to them. In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 45. Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, the one you sold (laughs) into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. He says, no distress allowed. That would be inconsistent with the forgiveness that I'm offering you. And no anger allowed. Don't be angry with yourself for what you've done. We're tempted to do that, of course, when we do wrong, when we experience guilt. And instead of confessing it, we hold it and we coddle it. And it's like the more we try and impress and push this guilt back into our own hearts through the self flagellation of our own thoughts, we forget that guilt is meant to lead us to confession. And repentance, to deal with it, not absorb it and hold it, but deal with it and get rid of it. But Joseph says, none of that, don't be angry for selling me. Why? Well, they're forgiven. He's already decided in his heart not to hold it against him. And so they are reconciled. I mean, what brings a person to that decision? Why not revenge, eye for eye and all that? Well, we find out in verses 6 to 8, because Joseph offers words of explanation. He tells us why he's not acting the way we might think he might act in revenge. Because Joseph sees the hand of God in this all. Now, of course, that doesn't remove their culpability. We'll talk about their responsibility when we get to chapter 50. They are responsible before God for their actions, but he has sovereignly worked his will through them, and that is Joseph's point. Joseph sees the hand of God in his family's salvation. It might have taken 22 years for him to see it, and we know we need to be patient with his purposes. And he had to endure 22 years of pain and disappointment to get there. But his testimony, four times over, God did this, God did this, God did this, God did this. Verse 7. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you Jacob's sons, a remnant on earth, and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Beautiful. I'm a king, he says in verse 8, just like God told me in my dreams. And then verses 9 to 13, he's just like, okay, get dad and all your kids Come and live with me in this time of famine and starvation. We've got a place for you to live. You're saved, forgiven, reconciled, and a future. What a picture of the gospel. What a picture of the salvation that's held out to us when we believe in Jesus Christ. And just as the brothers could look to Joseph's words of reconciliation and explanation to reassure them that they're forgiven, they don't need to be distressed, they don't need to hold on to the guilt, so too we can look to Christ's own reconciliation through the cross and his words of explanation, like we've been looking at in Romans 8, and deal with guilt. It's beautiful. How do we know Joseph has forgiven his brothers? Well, one way is to look for the reassurance that he offers. I'm not going to hold this against you, he's saying. Let's move on. Get dad. Bring your kids down. Let's get going. But the second way we know that he is extending forgiveness is because we can look for blessing. Joseph demonstrates the reality of reconciliation in verses 14 to 15. Look with me. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Well, there you go. They hug it out. There's emotion expressed Then they talk it out. There's conversation. Can you imagine what that conversation was like? So what have you been up to these last 22 years? Well, they've all got stories to tell. Judah. Joseph. But then, of course, the passage ends with other evidences of blessing. Others celebrate the site of reconciliation. In verses 16 to 24, Pharaoh's heart is absolutely captured by this reconciliation. He wants in on the blessing. He wants in on the party. Joseph's already decreed exactly what's going to happen next, but he talks like he's the one who's come up with bunt. Yeah, 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 bring, bring your family down. We've got places for you. And then, of course, in verses 25 to 28, precious And indeed undeserving, those hurt the most are revived at reconciliation. Jacob, who refused to be comforted at the news of his son's death, discovers at the news his son is alive that he is revived. He's alive again. So the simple message of this vast text is quite simply that God is at work to awaken guilt in sinners like them, like us. And it's very good news for people who have been sinned against like Kim Pook, the napalm girl. It's very good news for people like us who even in this room There are many of us who have experienced, well, all of us have experienced low level sin against us, some more serious, and many, many desperately horrible. But God awakens guilt in sinners to the point that sinners can be changed. I see this in myself. We can look for remorse that has led to change as evidence of God's work in people's hearts. Of course, remorse on its own is not proof. As Judas demonstrated, that's called worldly sorrow. But remorse that leads to confession and repentance and a turnaround and change in life, that's godly sorrow. And 2 Corinthians 7 tells us godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. The fact that God awakens guilt in sinners is good news for people, not just who are sinned against, but it's very good news for people who are sinners and realize it for themselves, like you, like me. God is so gracious to make us aware of guilt and condemnation. You know, judgment won't be a surprise to anyone in the New Testament. In Romans 1... We read that God's existence and even his anger against sin has been made known to the point that no one can claim to be without excuse. We have the external witness of creation and we have the internal witness of our conscience. But we also have his word in bold italics, and underline that confirms it. And he makes us aware of this guilt that we might deal with it. Have you? There's no amount of playing around with the anesthetizing aspects of our world like money, sex, drugs, anything that can deal with guilt. But he makes us aware, with it, aware of it so we can deal with it in the way that David, a king of Israel, did in Psalm 51 when he in light of his guilt cried out have mercy on me o god according to your unfailing love according to your great compassion blot out my transgressions wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for i know my sin and my sin is always before me against you and you only have i done what is evil have done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. We call out for mercy when he awakens guilt in us. Have you done that? So God awakens mercy in those who are sinned against so that we can even see God's hand and purpose and accept it amazingly to absorb the pain of the offense. So crucial this, isn't it? Because we find it so hard to forgive. But God invites us to consider two things. Even in the parable of the unmerciful servant that Jesus himself teaches, what are we going to do if we're forgiven this great massive debt by God and yet we go and throttle the life out of someone unmercifully because they're always a tenor? The point of the parable is that's crazy behavior. Have mercy to the extent that you've received mercy or else judgment may well still await. And of course, the encouragement in the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus' own words. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Well, the call of God's words in our action and response towards those in whom God has awakened guilt to the point of confession is to not give them what they deserve, payback. It's to give them what they don't deserve. That's grace. And in all of this, we see the gospel. Christ who suffered so that he might preserve for God a remnant of rescued image-bearers he's the new and better judah and who would save our lives your life my life a sinful and guilty and vile we as we are in our offense against him to save our lives by a great deliverance, as 2 Corinthians 5 says. God reconciled the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Now God made him who had no sin to be sin for us So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Wow. We ought to bow our heads, pray, and then sing our hearts out. Let's do that now.